0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher, or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So for the few last few weeks, we've done a rather deep dive into recent archaeological finds, and we spent a lot of time in the past, obviously. So let's move back to the present now, and we are going to start by talking about one of my other favorite subjects, uh, which is birds and animal cognition. And so the first time I learned about how smart crows could be, was actually watching the amazing, extremely highly recommended uh, Life of Birds with Sir David Attenborough. Um, I literally cannot recommend that series enough. Um, We've talked about uh, some of the birds that are featured in there over the years. Uh, The most amazing are the Bowerbirds and um, some of the other birds in um, Australia, and in Melanesia, they have amazing birds, the, the birds of paradise, um, just, it's just, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot stress how much uh, you should definitely see it if you have not. And um, it's also a little bit less uh, stressful than watching The Life of Animals, because there's less, uh, it's mostly sort of, look at these beautiful animals instead of, you know, look at this beautiful animal eating another animal. Um, The bird, the birds one is, I remember being a little less uh, (laughs) um, big on how nature is red in tooth and claw, shall we say. (laughs) Okay, so in the particular episode, uh, where Sir David goes to the Pacific Island of New Caledonia, he shows off these amazing crows that inhabit the island. And so uh, these crows, Corvus monodiloides, also are known for having developed tool usage in the wild. Uh, for instance, they use small sticks to lure grubs from logs. So what, the, what happens is that the grubs have uh, burrowed into the log. And what the crows will do is they'll find a stick and they'll actually create a stick so they'll um, you know they don't just pick up any stick they will pick up a piece of wood and they will actually often shape it uh, as best they can obviously without hands (laughs) and so um, they do that and then what they will do is they poke it into the hole where the grub is and basically they agitate the grub until the grub bites onto the end of the stick at which time they're able to pull it out And feast. And so, uh, yeah, very, very smart animals. Uh, And so, a new study suggests that they do this not only because, well, it helps them gain food, but also because it's enjoyable. And that might sound weird, but hang with me. Now, this suggests that the evolution of tool use may have been influenced by enjoyment. What this suggests is that just the same way we enjoy something like solving a crossword, New Caledonian crows actually enjoy enjoyed simply using a tool, said Dakota McCoy, a graduate student at Harvard University. I think it suggests there's a lot more going on in that little head than we think. They get satisfaction out of doing things they're good at, have trained for their whole lives, and that they use frequently. And so McCoy and her colleagues developed an experimental protocol for testing how optimistic the birds were feeling. So, using a small box, they showed the crows that when placed on the left hand side of the table, the box always contained a large reward. When placed on the right hand side of the table, it would contain only a small scrap of meat. The researchers then placed the box in the middle of the table. They surmised that if the crows quickly investigated the box, then they were optimistic that it would have the large amount of food. If they ignored the box or waited, they were feeling that it was most likely containing the disappointingly small amount of food and thus more pessimistic. They then created a series of tests over the next days. In one setup, the crows had to use a tool to extract a piece of meat from a box, and in another, the meat was readily available. But we thought that it might not be that tool use might not be that tool use puts them in a good mood. It could just be that they had to work harder, McCoy said. So we added two more conditions. In one, the meat was right on the table, so there was no effort involved, and in another, Effortful condition, they had to fly around to the four corners of the room to retrieve each piece of meat. And what they found was that the crows approached the box quickly after both the tool use and the easy test setups. They were much less enthusiastic after the test requiring them to fly around the four corners of the room in order to gather all of the food together. They enjoyed the easy condition, that was no surprise. But the surprise was that clearly they don't just like tool use because it's difficult. We controlled for difficulty, and that wasn't what motivated their interest. There is something specific about tools that they're enjoying, McCoy said. One potential answer for why tool use evolved is because crows are used to picking up objects and catching them. They actually love when you're experimenting with them to pick up your equipment and cash it away Catch it way up high where you can't get to it, she added. Once crows started using tools, the fact that it made them feel good encouraged them to keep at it, refining and developing the behavior further. Many crows are just like humans and other primates in that. When they're doing these complicated actions, they're reinforced not just by getting a prize out of it, because, but because they actually enjoy the process itself. And so that is super cool. Um... I think it makes total sense. Uh, we are just constantly finding new uh, ways to test animal cognition. And it's been really amazing to see how we've really been able, researchers have been able to develop. These uh, hypotheses about how birds are actually able to do a lot of cognition that we would never have thought they would be able to do, uh, you know, even 20 years ago, even 10 years ago in some cases. Um, And so it's just incredible that uh, we are finally able to kind of crack the code of finding out that Uh, As I'm always want to say that we're not quite as special as we think we are, and that a lot of animals have parallel, uh, not some not necessarily the same, but parallel uh, forms of cognition, and are able to do a lot of the things that we have always traditionally thought were only for humans. Um, And so yeah, it's very, very cool. And so uh, staying with crows but moving species, another recent study shows that carrion crows or corvus coronae are able to voluntarily control their calls, which suggests that calls in songbirds are under cognitive control of the animal, not just uh, in reaction to stimuli. And yes, you may have noticed that I said songbirds. Uh, Despite their less than melodious call, crows are actually considered songbirds. Think about the fact that I think blue jays are also, because they're um, a cousin of the corvids, uh, blue jays are also uh, songbirds and goodness uh, as I was coming here this evening there was a blue jay somewhere in my neighborhood and there is nothing melodious about the cry of a blue jay. Um, they're they're beautiful birds but they're terrible to listen to and they're also uh, often brood parasites so uh, which is when they will um, lay their egg in another bird's nest uh, and you know, leave the raising of the chick to another bird. And so yeah, they're, they're not very nice. They're very pretty. They're very, very pretty, but they're not nice. And uh, definitely not uh, going to be serenading anyone anytime soon. Okay, let's get back to the story though. Uh, the new research comes from the University of Tübingen in Germany. And so songbirds are generally known for their acoustically elaborate songs, which show that the avian brain can handle flexibility and potentially conscious control. However, they did want to explore the fact that there are other variables which might have caused this variability in birdsong, which would not be based on conscious control. And so Katharina Brecht and colleagues have tested carrion crows to see if they could determine whether or not the behavior showed signs of cognitive control. They wanted to see if the crows would respond in a selective way or simply as a response to stimuli, such as food, predators, or some other environmental trigger. They write, in order to demonstrate volitional vocalizations, three criteria have to be fulfilled in unison. First, vocalizations need to be uttered in response to an arbitrary instruction stimulus that is neutral in its value or emotional valence. Second, vocalizations need to be uttered in a manner that is temporally contingent to the instruction stimulus. Third, vocalizations need to be produced reliably and after the presentation of the instructive stimulus and withheld in its absence or after the presentation of another instructive stimulus. So basically, what they mean is that the uh, vocalization has to be uh, uttered in response to some sort of uh, stimulus that has been uh, taught to them or that isn't something involved with food or predators or uh, mating or any of that sort of thing. And then, of course, the vocalization needs to be, you know, very prompt when that uh, stimulus is shown to them and that they need to not uh, speak or, you know, do the call when some other stimulus comes up or when there's no stimulus at all. Pretty straightforward. And so to test this, they used three male carrion crows and taught them to emit calls in response to visual cues represented by colored squares, which of course have no meaning beyond their color uh, for crows, and to withhold calls in response to a different kind of cue. And so uh, these are called go, uh, hold, and no-go trials uh, sort of respectively. We'll talk about it in a second. Um, and so the two crow, two of the crows were then trained on a task with the color cues reversed and reward, were rewarded <laughs> for withholding vocalizations with yet another cue. And so they found that vocalization in response to the go cue was precisely timed and highly reliable in all three crows. So for instance, say that the go cue was a red square, every time they saw the red square, they would make a vocalization immediately. The crows also succeeded in no-go trials, which did not involve food rewards. And so that basically shows that they really did get what was going on. There was no reward and they still were willing to go through the um, experimental uh, setup. Our study shows that crows can be taught to control their vocalizations just like primates can. And that their vocalizations are not just a reflexive response, the researcher said. This finding not only demonstrates once again the cognitive sophistication of the birds of the crow family, it also advances our understanding of the evolution of vocal control. And so not only do birds have control over their vocal calls, apparently, Uh, These calls are sometimes composed, or maybe always, but we haven't really, really uh, studied it too much yet, but this is sort of the beginning of this um, discussion. And so sometimes they are composed of distinctive building blocks, much the same as human language. To our knowledge, this is the first time that the meaning-generating building blocks of a non-human communication system have been experimentally identified, said Professor Simon Townsend, a researcher at the University of Warwick and the University of Zurich. Studying Australian chestnut-crowned babblers, or pomatostomus ruficeps. <laughs> Uh, sometimes the the Latin names really are hard. <laughs> uh, they started they started uh, studying them way back in twenty fifteen, and so Townsend and his colleagues have identified two different sounds, an A sound and a B sound, in different arrangements when the birds were performing specific behaviors. And so in the new study, the researchers used playback experiments that have previously been used on infants to test the bird's speech song perception. Through systematic comparisons, we tested which of the elements babblers perceived as equivalent or different sounds, said Dr. Sabrina Ensiger from the University of Zurich. In doing so, we were able to confirm that the calls could be broken up into two perceptually different, uh, perceptually distinct sounds that are shared across the calls in different arrangements. Furthermore, none of the comprising elements carried the meaning of the calls confirming that the elements are meaningless. And so basically, what they found was that it has to be one of the patterns rather than just the single calls. And so when the birds are flying, they use an AB call. Whereas when they are feeding their chicks in a nest, then they use something called a A, BAB call. But as noted above, none of the five constituent elements of A or B are meaningful sounds on their own. The elements are not meaningful to the birds independent of the combinations. These findings raise the exciting possibility that the cap- that the capacity to generate meaning from meaningless building blocks is widespread in animals but there are still considerable differences between such systems and word generation in language the scientist said a focus on the acoustic distinctiveness of sounds in meaningful animal vocalizations offers a promising approach to investigate the building blocks of non-human animal communication systems. And so basically what they're saying is that while the birds may be able to distinguish the different combinations as having significance to certain activities or tasks, they don't go so far as to say that the birds have specifically assigned those combinations in an agreed upon symbolic way as with human words. And they also note that human speech evolves much more complex forms of combinatoriality. As with what are called minimal pairs, such as lap versus tap, where the single sound interchange transforms the meaning of the word. But it is a great step to learning more about how animals might communicate within species. And thinking about that, thinking about communicating uh, intraspecies, Apparently, birds are not the only ones who are interested in their calls. It turns out that squirrels not only listen for the distinctive calls of things like hawks and birds of prey, they are also listening to other birds to alert them not only to potential dangers, but also when they can well relax and enjoy the music. We knew that squirrels eavesdropped on the alarm calls of some bird species, but we were excited to find that they also eavesdropped on non-alarm calls, sounds that indicate the birds feel relatively safe, said the study authors from Oberlin College, including lead author Marie Lilly, an undergraduate, which I think is pretty cool. The researchers developed an app where they could record the squirrel's movements with timestamps allowing them to observe before, during, and after a three-minute interval in which first a red tail hawk call was broadcast, followed by 30 seconds of silence and then either bird chatter or ambient background noise. And so, uh Lily rode around the local area on her bike, apparently uh, with sound equipment tied to the handlebars. When she found a squirrel, she would wait for it to adjust to her presence and then let loose with the hawk cry. She'd wait thirty seconds in silence, and then after she'd play either the bird song or ambient noise. They found that the squirrels exposed to bird chatter directly after the calls, were less likely to be alarmed. Now, of course, this isn't a case of specific symbiosis, for instance. Uh, While squirrels and birds are often in close proximity, there's no specific relationship between any species of birds and squirrels. This is a big difference between the kind of eavesdropping that we report on in our paper and the kind that other researchers have reported on from other species that attend to cues of safety, said Professor Keith Tarvin, one of the authors of the study. In those other cases, the eavesdroppers and the callers tend to move around together, which provides the eavesdroppers with many opportunities to learn the sounds made by the callers and learn to associate those calls with relative safety. And so it may come down to a sneaky ability of evolution uh, to create novel solutions to energy expenditure. I think that the squirrels are able to reduce the costs of being vigilant if they can exploit the information produced by the birds, said Tarvin. If squirrels can, quote, interpret the information about safety, then perhaps they won't have to allocate quite as much time or energy towards being self vigilant that would allow them to reallocate that time and energy towards gathering more food per hour, seeking mates, caring for offspring, preening, and other self-maintenance behaviors. Now, one of the other things that they mention is that while it might not have been the focus of the research specifically, this does suggest that anthropogenic noises might disrupt the ability of some animals to rely on these calls. There's a lot of good evidence that anthropogenic noise is affecting individual species, notes Tarvin. Some ecologists are looking at whether that has a cascading effect on community structures itself. The jury's still out on that, but it's interesting to think about how small things that ordinarily might not catch our attention may actually have some important implications. And of course, that's something that we've sort of unfortunately stumbled upon time and time again. So, um, you know, the thing that I think of most when I think about anthropogenic noises affecting species is in the oceans. Uh, so for instance, we know for a fact, despite the fact that a lot of people, uh, kind of, uh, stick their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 that sonar is affecting, uh, marine animals and especially marine mammals. Um, and there's still a, the jury is out. Obviously, um, we haven't specifically figured this out yet, but uh, there is some, um, at least, preliminary evidence that uh, some some beaching events might be from having been disrupted by sonar, and so it's been really hard for. Um, marine animals because there's a lot of things going on, not only sonar, but of course, there's also uh, one of the reasons why you don't want offshore drilling is that one of the things that people do when they're looking for oil underneath the ocean is they basically take the equivalent of a giant jackhammer and kind of, not kind of, they actually do just slam it into the um, into the bottom of the ocean in order to kind of create sound waves so that they can then read what's underneath the uh, crust. And so that obviously also has a huge impact on cetaceans and all sorts of other, um, you know, ocean dwellers. Because again, the other thing too, is that we still don't know pretty much anything about the ocean. We know some of the creatures that live in it. But other than that, when you really look at how much we know versus how much we don't know about the ocean, it's kind of crazy. Um, It's really unfortunate that part of the problem is that we're basically uh, killing the ocean before we even know what's in it that we're killing. Um, And so that's a huge problem. And um, obviously, No easy solutions tonight, but we're going to take a break. (laughs) And uh, when we come back, we will uh, switch topics. We'll switch and uh, we'll actually talk about the uh, Loch Ness Monster for a few minutes. So stay tuned for that because that'll be fun. All right. Um, I'm going to put on some uh, promos and some station IDs and such, and I will be back in just a few minutes. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to down-tempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Next to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Aquí habla Marta Martínez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, W X O J L P, Northampton. And we are back, uh, and you are indeed listening to W X O J L P, one hundred three point three FM in Northampton, Massachusetts, and this is evidence-based radio. And as promised, we are now going to switch to talking about the Loch Ness monster. Okay, that's a little bit of a cheat. (laughs) Obviously, uh, we're not going to be talking about the monster per se, but we're going to be talking about some really interesting research that has been done in the Loch recently. And so... I do enjoy having a lovely suite of stories that all sort of flow uh, together as the birds did, Uh, but I definitely don't want to keep uh, necessarily missing out on other things because I stick uh, to a theme. And so I definitely want to talk about this story, which is that there has been the revelation that large amounts of eel DNA have been found in Loch Ness. People love a mystery, but we we're used. To, sorry, people love a mystery. We've used science to add another chapter to Lost ne- to Loch Ness's mystique," said team leader Professor Neil Gamal, a researcher with the University of Otago. Gamal and colleagues from the Loch Ness Centre, the Loch Ness Project, the University of Otago, the University of Copenhagen. The University of Highlands and Islands, which I think is a great name, uh, the University of Hull and the University of Bangor, uh, collected 250 samples of water from different locations within the loch. The researchers examined the samples for eDNA or environmental DNA, which is DNA shed by organisms and that is then present in the environment. In this case, the waters of the loch. They were able to find traces of bacteria, fish, and all manners of creatures which inhabit the large and deep body of water, and which also visit it. (laughs) Most species are so small you can barely see them, but there are a few that are larger, and of course the question we're all asking is... Is there anything big enough to explain the sort of observations people have made over the years that have led to this myth or this legend of a monster or creature in Loch Ness? Uh, Professor Gamel asks. Now, the researchers, unfortunately, found no evidence of any anomalous DNA uh, that might be attributable to a monster, nor did they find DNA from actually many of the more prosaic Yet still fairly improbable candidates. And I say unfortunately, but really not, because it's pretty clear that there's nothing weird there. Um, I mean, there is something obvious, there is some sort of mystery, but it's definitely science-based. It's not uh, going to be an extinct plesiosaur or, or anything like that. And so but there have been some other uh, ideas, and we were they were able to kind of knock a bunch of those out. So there's no shark DNA in Loch Ness based on our sampling. There is no catfish DNA in Loch Ness based on our sampling. We can't find any evidence of sturgeon either, uh, Professor Gamal notes. But what they did find was eel. Lots and lots of DNA from eels. There is a very significant amount of eel DNA, he notes. Eels are very plentiful in Loch Ness with eel DNA found at pretty much every location sampled. There are a lot of them. So are they giant eels? Well, our data doesn't reveal their size, but the sheer quantity of the material says that we can't discount the possibility that there may be giant eels in Loch Ness. Therefore, we can't discount the possibility that what people see and believe is the Loch Ness monster might be a giant eel. Further investigation is needed to confirm or refute the theory. So based on our data, giant eels remain a plausible idea. And what's cool about this is that actually as far back as 1933, researchers had suggested that giant eels might be the cause of sightings. But of course, as time went on, uh, the idea that there might be a cryptid lurking in the lake gained popularity. Uh, And I would argue, especially as it is a great marketing tool for tourism to have a uh, lake monster that is a cryptid uh, rather than just some giant eels. I mean, giant eels are pretty cool, don't get me wrong, but I don't think they have quite the uh, tourist pull as do uh, cryptids. And so the researchers did find other traces in the water. We also found substantive levels of DNA from humans and a variety of species directly associated with us, such as dogs, sheep, and cattle, the researchers said. However, we also detected wild species local to the area, such as deer, badgers, foxes, rabbits, voles, and multiple bird species, which is very cool because basically they found a whole uh, kind of database of all of the animals and everything that is both inhabiting the lake and nearby. And so the researchers have suggested that not only might this solve the riddle of Loch Ness, but it might actually serve as a proof of concept for using eDNA surveys in major waterways in order to survey the biological diversity of a region in a rather elegant fashion. And so, you know, it's really hard to kind of do a lot of statistical data sitting around watching camera traps, going back to camera traps and hoping that animals have gone pie by your camera traps. Um, I remember doing a citizen science project where I was helping, uh, they had people helping kind of just write down what you saw in camera trap photos. And a lot of them were just the wind was blowing. And so the grass in front of the camera moved, and it took a picture. Um, It was also, uh, there were also, you know, a lot of wildebeest, uh, a lot of, um, zebras. And, you know, there was occasionally a really cool find, like occasionally you'd see, um, lions or elephants or, um, even, I think I once got to see a secretary bird, which are very weird, um, looking and, um, notwithstanding the cartoon uh, version of them. So if you have Netflix and you've watched um, Agret uh, one of the um, women who are the sort of career women, uh, the bird is actually based on a secretary bird, uh, which I think is kind of fun because I believe that she's basically, you know, an executive secretary. <laughs> um, so yeah, anyways, fun fact for the night. And so, yeah, but... Again, a lot of that was just pictures of waving grass. But if you could just sample the waterways nearby, sample, for instance, a watering hole or sample a, uh, you know, a river or a lake near where you know there's a large population of animals, but they're hard to find, then you could easily be able to get a general sense of what is living in the area, which I think is very cool. But, let us go back to eels. And so, uh, we know that there are electric eels in uh, the Amazon. And so, we now know, in fact, that there are three kinds, at least, of electric eel in the Amazon. And so, in fact, one of the new species... Of electric eel has been found to be capable of generating the greatest electrical discharge of any known animal. And so it turns out again that there are at least three species of electric eels, which are electrophores, and then uh, now we have several new species. And so we definitely used to think that there was just one. Uh, And they also uh, are very much the stuff of legends, which I think it's a lovely uh, sort of parallel because there's a lot of stories in um, South America about eels killing people and horses and all sorts of things. And so definitely a lot of folklore around them. And so the two new species have been described by a group of researchers affiliated with the Smithsonian Institute and the National Geographic Society, among others, and supported by the Sao Paulo Research Foundation. And it turns out that electric eels are not a specific thing. They're not eels aren't a uh, kind of fish, they're actually kind a kind of a larger group of fish. And so they are a kind of naked backed knife fish, or uh, gymnotidae. And they are most more closely related to catfish and carp than to other eel species. And so publishing in Nature Communications, they showed that the fish first described over 250 years ago, still has surprises to share. It also suggests avenue of research into the origin and production of strong electrical discharges in other species. Gymniforms, the knife fish family to which Gymnotidae belongs, are native to Mexico and South America and are largely found in freshwater habitats. Taxonomically, there are currently 250 valid gymnotophores, gymnotiform species among 34 genera and five families. All are capable of producing a weak electric field, which they use in communication and as an aid to navigation. Uh, you may have noticed if you've seen pictures of eels, they have very small eyes, uh, so they don't see very well with those eyes. The electric eel, which can reach 2.5 meters in length, is the only fish that produces such a strong discharge. It uses three electric organs. The shock is used for defense and predation, said Carlos David de Santana, an associate researcher at the U.S. National Museum of Natural History, administered by the Smithsonian and first author of the article. By the way, uh, 2.5 meters uh, is over 8 feet for those of us still stuck using imperial measurements. Um, And so they can get pretty big. The researchers correlated DNA, morphology, and environmental data, as well as measuring voltage discharges to conclude that the eels should be divided into three separate species. Previously, they were all considered Electrophorus electricus. And so, this first species was described in 1766 by the Swedish nat- naturalist, and actually one of the founders of the science of taxonomy, Carl Linnaeus. And so, members of this species are now defined as living in the northernmost part of the Amazon region called the Guiana Shield. And this encompasses the northern parts of three Brazilian states. Uh, and the countries of Guiana, French Guiana, and Suriname. The new species are varii, which inhabits the lowest part of the Amazon basin in a region with relatively high salt content, which actually allows it to have a lower voltage as saltier water is a better conductor of electricity. And E. voltai which inhabits the Brazilian shield, which encompasses the south of the Brazilian states of Pará Amazonas, Rondonia, and the north of Mato Grosso. And so shield regions are elevated at more than 300 meters or almost a thousand feet above sea level. These These shield areas have relatively little dissolved salts, which is why the more potent eels reside in these regions. Now, the higher voltage is most likely an adaptation to that poor electrical conductivity of the waters. We used voltage as the key differentiation criterion. This has never been done before to identify a new species, noted Nacerio Menenses of the Museo de Zoologica de Universidad de Sao Paulo. Now, the group also used a variety of methods of DNA sequencing to confirm their findings. Their body shape is highly conserved, It has not changed much during 10 million years of evolution. Only a few details of their external morphology distinguish them, and only an integrated analysis of morphology, genetics, and ecology was able to make robust distinctions between the species, Santana explained. Now, one specimen of the new species E. volti, was measured as having a discharge of 860 volts, shattering the previous record of 650 volts. And while E Volta is and Evolta is named in honor of Alessandro Volta, uh, who designed the first electric bat- battery in 1799, which was based on the design of an electric eel. Ivariae is named for zoologist Richard P. Vary, a researcher at the Smithsonian who died in 2016. He was the foreign researcher who most influenced and helped Brazilian students and researchers with the study of fish in South America, Santana said. Now, the researchers believe that there were two speciation events involved – the first in the Miocene, around 7.1 million years ago, that separated E. varii from the common ancestors of E. volti and E. electricus, and then the researchers plan to do more testing to see if there was, if the differentiation was caused in part by the different ecological niches that caused this to happen. So. When you have some of those eels in a place with less, um, with less salt and thus making it harder to be able to actually uh, conduct that electricity and then you have others where you can actually do it much easier, that is definitely something that could lead to speciation. And so that is one of the sort of classic things that can lead to speciation is kind of, uh, the classic one is different uh, ecological niches. And so if you end up with some animals on one side of a mountain and some on the other side of a mountain, they will then develop differently. That's kind of the very classic, classic uh, version of um, speciation and how it can be affected by environment and by uh, geography. And so that is something that they will definitely have to look into. And so Santana notes that while the voted voltage is high, it's not necessarily dangerous to humans. And of course, he would have firsthand knowledge of this, having been out in the field collecting and being shocked by the eels in the river all over the Amazon. Uh, the amperage around one amp is nothing compared to the 10 or 20 amps that can be discharged for, from inst- for instance, a power outlet. And of course, if you were unable to pull away from that amperage, it could be fatal. Now, the discharge is also direct current in that case, rather than alternating or pulsing current, which is employed by the eels. The electric organ also takes time to recharge after a large shock. And so while fairly harmless to a healthy human, a group of eels could be dangerous to someone who has a weak heart or someone who's drowning, for instance. The shock stuns the victim. It's sufficiently strong to help the fish capture prey or scare off a predator, Santana said. And so they also expect that uh, they actually will probably be able to find more species among other knife fish genera. And so that will be really interesting. And so... I think I forgot to say that uh, they the first branching off was in the Miocene around 7.1 million years ago uh, when the E. varii uh, branched off from E. volti and electris, and then E. volti and electris would have diverged in the Pliocene around 3.6 million years ago. And so, yeah, not so long ago in geological terms, at least. <laughs> Um, and of course, that's partially because they are still much more uh, alike than the other. Now, the researchers also found that in contrast to the written literature, the animals are actually not solitary and use their discharges to communicate calls and to gather and, for instance, defend against predators. Groups of up to 10 adults were regularly observed. The discovery of new electric eel species in Amazonia, one of the planet's biodiversity hotspots, is suggestive of the vast amount of species that remain to be discovered in nature. Furthermore, the region is of great interest to other scientific fields, such as medicine and biotechnology, reinforcing the need to protect and conserve it and is important for studies involving partnerships among Brazilian researchers and between us and groups in other countries to explore the region's biodiversity, Santana said. Sigh. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, not said but implied in that is very soon, please. Um, so that we can really be able to say, uh, you know, this needs to be preserved because, uh, it's in trouble. It's, it's very much in trouble, but electric eels are very cool. So we should just talk, think about really cool electric eels. Um, A great episode of um, the show River Monsters, uh, which I might have mentioned before once or twice or 10 times, uh, is one of my favorite shows ever. Uh, It sounds kind of silly, but there's something about Jeremy Wade uh, sitting there talking to you while he fishes for crazy fish uh, that he always catches and releases. Um, It's just great. And there's an episode where he goes in search of electric eels and um, tells you about some of those folklore stories and things like that. And so again, highly recommended uh, River Monsters. I think it's still on Netflix uh, or other versions of uh, streaming. Okay, so we have spent a lot of time tonight talking about biological and zoological uh, topics. Uh, So let us wrap up tonight with a story from Mineralogy. The Wedderburn Iron Meteorite, a well-rounded monolith, a few inches around, uh, was found back in 1951 on a road just outside Wedderburn in Victoria, Australia. Everything seems to happen in Australia. The uh, <laughs> this meteorite's from Australia. The birds that they were uh, looking at for speech were from Australia. Um, it's just funny. Lots of things happen in Australia, lots of weird birds in Australia. So, um, not really surprising that they were looking at birds earlier in the, uh, in our story from, uh, about songs. I recently got to actually see some, um, uh, some Moa birds, not Moa birds. I saw, um, what are they? They're not ostriches, but they're. Anyways, the big birds, and man, it's really easy to tell that they were dinosaurs once. Um, my mind is completely blanking, but um, yeah. And also, I did read recently talking about her uh, getting back to the life of birds again. I read I read recently that the um, kakapos, which are these adorable sort of. Cat sized parrots that they've actually kind of been doing better. Uh, There's still some worry about them uh, not surviving, but they've been doing better, which is really cool. Uh, But getting back to this meteorite, um, the It was found in 1951, and so, you know, then it kind of was left on a shelf. We've talked about this whole thing about things in museums that eventually are uh, found to have cool things in them when somebody finally gets around to looking at them. So, recently a team of researchers from Caltech, UCLA, and the Maine Mineral and Gem Museum, which is a place I now want to visit, performed a mineralogical investigation of the meteorite. Analyzing a polished fixed section of the meteorite from the UCLA meteorite collection, they found a novel iron carbide mineral. The mineral is called edscatite, and it has a chemical composition of iron-5-carbon-2. Edscatite is a new iron carbide Fe5C2 joining the other two carbides found in iron meteorites, Cohenite and Hexanite as a naturally occurring approved mineral, uh, the researchers noted. The mineral name is in honor of Edward R.D. Scott, a pioneering cosmochemist, which is a great uh, title to have, as at the University of Hawaii at Manoa for his multifaceted contributions to research on meteorites. And so, the authors used high-resolution scanning electron microscopy, electron backscatter diffraction, and electron probe microanalysis to determine the chemical composition, structure, and phases of the new mineral. It occurs as lathe-shaped single crystals. Uh, Basically, they look like kind of uh, single plates, and they are white when you kind of look at them under the microscope. Now, the mineral would have initially been formed in the core of another planet. Like cohenite like and Haxenite, uh forms in low nickel iron known as camisite in the meteorite literature. But unlike these two carbides, it forms lathes, possibly due to very rapid growth after supersaturation of carbon, they said. And so, yeah, basically, it's just a really cool new thing that hasn't been seen before and comes from the core of another planet somewhere that is probably uh, either no longer a planet or had a really bad time with another impact in order for bits of its core to have ended up in meteorites on Earth. Um, But yeah, so that's all the time we have for tonight. do stay tuned again for next week and also for civil politics coming up next. So definitely do stay tuned for that and have a great weekend. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is "Wiggin" by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash bird boy